This is an ABC podcast. On ABC Grandstand Digital, this is more than just a game. Yes, welcome to More Than Just a Game, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play for the very last time on Grandstand Digital. It's Paul Roach with you here, and yes, the bell is ringing, the last lap board is out. It is, if not the grand final, and certainly the grand finale. Welcome to the last edition of More Than Just a Game on Grandstand Digital. Joining me today for this ultimate show, it's a full house here, as you'd expect. Uh, in the red corner, we have David Gill. G'day, Bear. G'day, Rochi. Going out at the top. Absolutely. In the blue corner, Simon Johnson. End of an era, Rochi. And in the South Bank corner, Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles. G'day all, g'day everybody. Coming up, Israel Folau, need I say more? Well, we certainly will. Uh, golf is under attack on a number of fronts, and rightly so. And um, given the closing of this chapter for more than just a game, we're going to talk to Winter Olympian and gold medalist Elisa Camplin about how athletes handle the next chapter in their lives when time is up on their careers. Of course, we'll wrap it up with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we have one last bit of fun at the expense of sports people around the world who've done things that they'd rather we'd forgotten about. You can follow us on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. Get all your favourite back editions of the show on iTunes. But for now, let's get into the final edition of More Than Just a Game. Israel Folau, what a hornet's nest. Now, as we go to uh, digits, there are still elements of the process to be played out. But irrespective of punishments, appeals and so forth, they won't change some of the fundamental questions raised. Now, there's been a lot of words written and spoken, and we're going to add to that, obviously. Now, for me, I love uh, an article that uh, Dawn Grace Cohen wrote in, I think it was the Nine Media. I've managed to adapt to not calling it Fairfax anymore. Now, uh, uh, she's married to a Robin, a lady, who was a 78er. This is a term I've only just become familiar with. uh, Someone who was arrested in the Gay Rights March uh, back in 1978 that essentially founded the Mardi Gras, Sydney Mardi Gras. She said this in her article, If we want a robust democracy, we need to learn how to distinguish between hate speech and an alternative, if unpleasant, view. We should sack people who promote physical or verbal abuse or who try to undermine or isolate colleagues... But did Falau threaten to kill, maim or abuse anyone? Did he insult gay people at work? Did he use contemptuous or abusive language? Did, did he tell deliberate lies? No. This is my starting point. It's a very interesting quote. Where do you draw, where do you draw the line, Rochi? It's a tough one, isn't it? And it's such a nuanced issue. I mean, when you've got such a range of views out there from the Alan Jones uh, corner. Now, I don't think the word nuanced and Alan Jones <laughs> oh, have no, ever no, appeared no. In, on, the, in the same sentence. Be professional, John. <laughs> He, um, you know, he's got some very strong views about the rights uh, of free speech, and we'll come to that later as to whether there actually is a legal, so-called legal right of free speech. Mm. Um, there's the employment law issues. Um, it's just such a, a difficult, difficult issue. And, I mean, this is a story that will play out for, for months to come. And I think it's, you know, we, we all have our views, and I think all of us probably, you know, disagree with the sentiments that he expressed on Twitter. Good point. Um, but at the end of the day, we are talking about somebody's livelihood, uh, and not only does it look like that he may be uh, sacked by his current employer, Rugby League has also come out and said categorically mm. he's not welcome here either. Uh, viewed from some perspectives, that may be seen as very harsh punishment for, for saying something stupid. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, I'm torn on this one a little bit. I mean, in the in the spirit of Voltaire, which, which you know is very relevant wow. to sport, <laughs> I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the mm. death your right to say it. Mm. Except 
We've been explicitly warned not to say this sort of stuff a year ago, and hopefully it was put into your contract, where, at which point we revert back into uh, Simon's point about can you do such a thing within employment law? Yeah, I mean, it, it just you know, the RA, the, the Rugby Australia statement itself was interesting. Whilst Israel is entitled to his religious beliefs, the way in which he expressed those beliefs is inconsistent with the values of the sport. It then sort of goes on to talk about wanting everyone to feel safe and welcome in the game. No vilification based on race, gender, religion, my uh, my emphasis, mm. or sexuality mm. is acceptable. Okay? Um, so surely the, uh, the, the catch-22 here is that Israel is being... Not just not discriminated against, but sort of pinged because, because of his own beliefs. Indeed, and, and there is that issue where I mean, there are some people who would suggest that Israel is being, um, or he's unfortunately got a situation where his employer is kowtowing to its major sponsor, whose CEO obviously happens to be a, a Alleg- fairly allegedly. Is it probably checking an allegedly there? Oh. No, I'm happy not to, but it happens to be a vocal proponent um, of the other side of the debate. Mm. So, And again, as um, Bear said at the outset, I think everyone on this panel would agree that um, certainly none of us share his views, and it's just the way he's expressed those, which I think is the the really controversial issue. But another perspective, Paul, is uh, which I think you raised um, in preparation for the show, is is it really necessarily to, to, to punish him in this way or let his words speak for themselves because the overwhelming majority of Australians will disagree with what mm-hmm. he says mm-hmm. and let that, um, that outrage work to bring reason to the issue. If Rugby Australia goes ahead to do what we think they're going to do, it almost kind of turns Israel Folau into a martyr oh, yeah. and lionises him as a, as a general of Christianity. So I'm just not sure. I mean, it's a really difficult issue I'm, and I'm going from side to side on the debate. Sack him, don't sack him. I'm not sure what the right answer is. And if, we, if you sack him, whether you punish him gently or you punish him significantly right? and, yep. and the, the, the mood seems to be significantly. I'm interested in, in a number of the other Polynesian players, both in Australia and also around the, the South mm. Pacific, who've said that they align with his views. Now, there's no question of them being sacked or sanctioned or what have you. Well, so, well there, so, there was so, in, the, in the UK. I mean, there was the UK player um, who actually, I think, liked one of Israel Folau's posts, mm. and he was sanctioned, I think, um, certainly not to the okay. same extent of being sacked, but he was sanctioned by um, the British Rugby Union or the English Rugby Union for doing that. So, uh, again, it's had a huge impact overseas as well. Well, we have this this concept of inclusion. So, I, you mm. know, I, I think Simon, you know, Rugby Australia's official position is is not kowtowing to a sponsor, but their official position is about encouraging inclusion. And it would be interesting, uh, an unintended consequence, if they were to to push to exclude you know people who uh, have a religious view like this. And and it's interesting the defence that uh, uh, the supporters of Israel. Uh, say, which is that he said these things with with love, right? Mm. So you know, it was in his mind not hate speech because he's sort of the, he, he would say, I'm guessing, at risk of putting words into his mouth, he would say he's the messenger, right? So he's as much as he holds these beliefs as his own, he's to your point, Riles, he is trying to save quote unquote people. Mm. He turns around and says, you know, love you all, but hey, th- these this bunch of people, and it's not just homosexuals, it's drunkards, so I'm in a bit of trouble, um, are, you know, destined for, for hell. So he's try- he's actually setting out to try and help people. I think it's a fairly convenient excuse, though, isn't it, to say oh, that he's, quote, he's quoting the Bible. That seems to be the argument that he's yeah. running. But he knows and must have known that he's a public figure, that his views on this issue are going to attract controversy. And in circumstances, as we've said, where he's allegedly been warned about doing it once before, exactly. he must have known yeah. the impact of what he was doing. 
Who's who's advising Israel for Laos? That's one kind of question that's um, mm. popped into my head um, a few times over the last few weeks. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to um, generalize, um, but I'm not sure that Israel is, you know, uh, very worldly wise or mm. intellectual person. He might be. I don't, I don't know him, so I can't really say that. But you know, what prompted him to to send those tweets in the first place? Yeah, it's hard to say, but I think they're genuinely held views. There's no doubt about yep. that, and um, I. I do think he must have known the impact of what what he was going to do. You can't yeah. – it's not as though he was sitting in his bedroom at night tw- um, posting this up on his social media feed, warned. not knowing that this was likely to happen. Yep. Well, again, I think he has claimed quite publicly that he was informed by wisdom that he regards as otherworldly. And he's also been quite clear on the fact that rugby is a distant second to his, his beliefs. So uh, last question, is, is this, if he gets sacked, is it proportional? When you think of proportionate, what's the word, right, right word there? Um, when you think of, for example, Smith and Warner, classic obvious case being done for cheating, uh, or at least in Smith's case, turning blind eye when he shouldn't have, uh, get a year suspension given by the, not by the sport specifically, but by the, 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 the administration effectively. Um, not that uh, one ruling in a sport creates a precedent in another, but that was a fairly harsh punishment in my mind for what they did. Yeah, I don't think the punishment will fit the crime. And I think that's where the legal issues will get really murky. And this is why it could drag on for so long. I mean, obviously, there's the potential for another appeal to another to an independent tribunal. If um, not either side doesn't like the process there, it'll go to court. And I think that's where the, the meat of the issue from a legal perspective will really come out. Well, uh, keep an eye on our, our Twitter feed because we'll be talking more about Israel. There's a lot more to give on that story. More than just a game on ABC Grandstand Digital. So as our own time here is wrapping up, we couldn't help but thinking about athletes when their time ends. They put their entire lives into their pursuits only for it to end, often often suddenly, which prompts the question, what next? I mean, how do they respond to that question? Well, joining us to discuss how athletes bridge the gap between their sports crew and their next chapter is gold medalist from the 2002 Winter Olympics and indeed bronze medalist from 2006, Elisa Camplin. Elisa, thanks for joining us on More Than Just a Game. Good morning, guys. Well, almost good afternoon, really, isn't it? <laughs> indeed. Uh, Elisa, we'll come to how our other athletes cope in a moment, but first, maybe a little bit about your own experience. I've got to say, I wasn't actually aware until fairly recently that you didn't take up skiing until the age of 19. Tell us a bit about your background to that point and then what made you hit the slopes. Uh, so I was like any regular Aussie kid um, into all sorts of sport growing up. Um, I did sport at school, sport after school. Um, that I grew up in a street of boys and you know people played footy and cricket out on the street in the evenings. Um, but I got into track and field pretty early. Um, so I always hoped that I would be a summer Olympian and represent Australia in, in some sort of track and field event. Um, but then when I got into my teens after having, I guess, really successful junior career, um, I ended up with some injuries and I was recruited into a gymnastics program. And I was probably a little bit too old to make it um, to an Olympics in gymnastics, but definitely fast-tracked through because I was strong and light from all my time in running. Um, but um, I just fell in love with the gymnastics aspect. And unfortunately, though, um, when I was 16, I got some stress fractures in my lower back and had to put that sport aside. So after a year off, I went back to track and field because Sydney had been named as the host city for the Olympics. Mm. And so I thought, well, maybe marathon running or something like that. Um, and so I was really, I was just really desperate to get to the Olympics. And, um, but I was finding um, it a little bit um, passionless, I guess, with the, with the long distance running. It probably wasn't where my heart was, even though I was really committed to, to trying to get to the game still in track and field. Um, I tried other sports like hockey and sailing in between, but um, 
And then it was at that point in time, it was 1994, and I saw Kirsty Marshall competing in um, the Lilyhammer Winter Olympics in aerial skiing, and I thought, oh my gosh, if I could just learn how to ski, I could do that sport. It, I just yeah, the gymnastic things, side, yeah. it talks to my heart. <laughs> I'm like, bring it on. I've got eight years. I can make this happen, and that's sort of how it all came to be. Isn't that spectacular? I mean, really. It's funny, you know, you you remind me a little bit of, there's a quote from Arthur Ashe that uh, says, you know, take what you've got, use what you have, you know, do what you can. Um, And and you really did that. You parlayed all of that, uh, the gymnastics and the passion and the competitive instinct, and you found almost through serendipity somewhere to direct it. And that next chapter out of that was actually the scheme. And it's funny because that really ended up becoming, you know, we're talking, geez, <laughs> 15 years ago now, um, 20 years probably when I made that first step in. Um, and that, that sort of formed a foundational concept for the sport talent identification and transfer program. Like I was quite lucky to manoeuvre myself around different sports as a, I guess you could say, a talented young Australian athlete. But um, now we obviously have more efficient methods in Australian sport to be able to move um, athletes that are committed um, and loving being athletes into the right sport so that we don't lose them from the system. But I love that quote because for me, I just think of it like I had this toolkit. You know, I had all these experiences and um, tangible and non-tangible assets and I just had to find the right sport so I could fulfil my potential. And Lisa, you obviously had an amazing career. Um, I imagine that took up, you know, a good 8, 10, 12 years uh, of your life. How did you come to the point uh, or when did you come to the point of starting to think about what the next phase might look like? Um, good question. So um, I had essentially eight years to get to my first game and games and 12 years to my next. But as you said earlier, I actually didn't come to aerial skiing until I was 19 and it was very deliberate when I started the sport and I was at university and I'd just finished my first internship with IBM. Um, So I was learning to ski and funding through, um, you know, part-time jobs at university, my first few years of skiing and then I moved into full-time work with IBM and I was really just trying to manage a full-time career with IBM with learning to ski and then my early years learning to jump and then adding in extra part-time work to be able to pay for all the costs. And slowly as I moved towards the 2002 Olympics, I was um, tinkering down the amount of work I was doing to more project-based work. And I needed that work there to be able to afford the skiing. Um, I didn't come from a family that had much money, middle-income family, and um, I needed to have all these jobs to sustain um, my efforts to get towards the Olympics. So when I did win, I was like, hey, hello, that's awesome. But I was also really in debt. (laughs) So I had a lot of money still to pay back from the effort to get there. Um, And then over the next four years of competing, I sort of got my debt down. um, And I wasn't working as much through that period. I was focused on trying to defend my Olympic title. But I always knew that I would retire in 2006. Um, I was 31 at that point. I would have loved to keep going. I enjoyed the sport. I loved the training, the competing, but I also wanted to find my next thing in life before it kind of became too late. Um, I knew as a, as a woman, it would be important to respect other areas of my life, um, to you know, find a life partner, refresh my career, make time if I wanted to have a family, which I, which I did. So I walked away from the sport at that point um, in 2006 and I was very satisfied with my sporting career. I felt like I'd achieved everything I wanted. So it was more um, letting go of the lifestyle and um, you know, that amazing opportunity to every day try and be the best I could at what I did. 
Um, but for me, fortunately, because I'd always done school and sport and then work and sport, A, I knew how lucky I was to be, you know, an athlete, but B, I also knew what it was to go back to work. So I think at a, at a practical perspective, I knew exactly what I was in for in returning to the workforce. Um, probably the thing I underestimated most was the emotional step mm. going back from elite sport um, you know, to, to find, I guess, and create my next era. Professionally, Elisa, you moved from one high-performance culture being Olympic standard sport to another high-performance culture being um, IBM. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that uh, very different? And then also, you know, to what extent did you, did you find that your experience in sport helped you in your career with IBM and elsewhere? Um, yeah, great question. Um, it, I, it's interesting. I, I went back to IBM and I knew the environment because I'd worked so many years leading into the Olympics. So it, it should have felt natural to step back into it. And I had a lot of colleagues there who, you know, knew what my strengths were. And, but I still felt like a fish out of water in the first sort of six to 12 months going back to the workforce. Um, you kind of let all your friends and your family as an athlete and all the people you spend all your time with and your regular schedule moving around the world and, you know, having intense training periods followed by the chance to test yourself in competition, all of that just stops overnight. And I felt um, I had a lot of control over aspects of trying to be my best in sport and Obviously, in the business environment, you, you don't have as much control and you, you need to learn skills that are more about influence and being part of a team. So um, I, I kind of had to fake it till I made it a little bit in the first instance while I tried to get comfortable. But fortunately, many of the skills that I had as an athlete were um, a great asset inside um, the business environment. There's, you know, the simple things like goal planning, um, having a really um, can-do attitude, very growth mindset, you know, we can do this, we can, if we just apply ourselves, we'll get the skills, we'll get the right people, you know, we'll be able to solve this problem. Um, and I think athletes are really good too at scenario planning and being really flexible in their thinking, uh, you know, looking for different ways that things can be done or predicting future derailment factors. So I, I, I was... Um, able to integrate with all my school skills and techniques back in the workforce pretty easily and become a you know a, a member a good member of the team um, and certainly I think that the resilience you learn physically and mentally in sport played out well um, being part of a, a bigger team um, in the corporate environment as well so it was more just having to get really comfortable because there is a, a huge hole after you finish sport and um, you do feel like a fish out of water. But I, I say to other athletes now who might ask me for what my experience was like, you, you need to just keep putting one foot in front of the other while that hole slowly closes. There's no, no easy way to fill it or replace what it is to be an elite athlete. Um, but slowly you, you build all the aspects of your life. And work is one component of that because you need a vocation. You need something to be engaged in and to be passionate about. But you also have to put time into your hobbies and your friends and your family and your support structure and all the other things that make up a full and holistic life. I think it's really hard for Joe and Joanne Public to grasp how challenging that must be to have something that consumes your whole life or close to and sort of effectively disappear overnight. I mean, there's some, there's some horror stories. There's some good stories. I read an interview recently by a well, former journalist and currently Swan's number one ticket holder, and also Eddie Maguire's favourite two-up player, Cynthia Bannum. Uh, she was interviewing the Sydney Swans mental health psychologist, uh, and she was also a, a, could have been an Olympian apparently in middle distance running, but she was very big on support networks, her friends and family, 
and also yeah. having something and, and kind of anything outside your sport of interest, so be it hobby or study or job or anything like that. Does that sort of resonate with you too, Elise? Is that your experience? Oh, 100%. And I think you do have a really tight network around you when you're in sport. Um, and I think the the the, 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 the big stepping stone, because it's kind of like a period of grief when you let go of something that was so important to you and you were so fully invested in, um, and recognising that you it's not going to be a, a, a like-for-like replacement. You have to slowly over time create the new life. And um, it feels uncomfortable for a while. Um, and your support structure is what can really ground you through that. So friends and family and getting involved in, in new passions and, and, and meeting new people that will not replace but supplement and start you on your, on your new journey. And I think yeah. that's, a, that's a little hard because people don't truly, as you said, understand the depth of grief you might be experiencing for the loss mm. of your previous life. Um, but it is to the athlete to be aware that you will go through this process and you know, allowing other people to be a part of helping you create that next life. So you're sort of yeah. open to the process. Isn't that interesting? I, funnily enough, I actually think that, uh, that uh, Joe and Joanne public would understand that. I think so many people, mm-hmm. you know, give so much of themselves to, you know, their everyday lives and then change comes comes upon them. Um, Elisa, I wanted to, to come back to what I think might be the understatement of the year, that you're very satisfied with your sporting career. I think you could say that uh, pretty uh, safely about your post-sporting life as well. If I, if I go beyond the IBM chapter, you then join the Collingwood board. You're now the patron. You have a personal and professional high-performance coaching gig. You've started uh, the most fabulous charity in Finn and Skift, uh, raising awareness for congenital heart disease and helping uh, fund equipment for the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. Um, you know, it, the next chapter seems to be coming together <laughs> uh, quite quite well. That's very, very kind of you. Yeah, I found, found lots of things... Um to fill my life with and I say that in a really positive way because I'm so passionate about all the things that I get to do. Um, two things that I, I have been able to also do is be able to tip back into the Australian sports system. I, I've I spent 10 years working with Sport Australia and um, was the deputy chair up until last year and um, p- continue very much to be involved with the Australian Winter Olympic moment through, movement through the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia. And you know, someone was in the background doing those kinds of jobs for me, unpaid, um, and that's what enabled me to achieve my dream of being an Olympic athlete and, you know, to go through the ranks and actually end up being funded to represent my country and, you know, deliver on what was expected of me. Um, so I hope someone will do that for my children in <laughs> 10, 15, 20 years. And so, I, you know, in this era of my life, I've had the capacity and the time to, to do that and it's probably one of the more satisfying things I've actually had the privilege of doing because when you're an athlete you don't realise how much is infrastructure is behind you and a lot of it, um, you know, running on oily rag, there's not enough money in the sports system um, mm. and so, yeah, it, I, I feel pretty fortunate to be honest. I've been given a lot and so giving back has actually been is just as satisfying. All right, Alyssa, well, thank you very much and indeed congratulations on your success at the Olympics and thank you for that and thank you for your time on More Than Just a Game. 
Thanks, you guys. Had a great time chatting. Elisa Camplin there, former Olympic gold medalist, uh, giving you some insights and some hope and inspiration for our next chapter and hopefully yours too. If you are a professional athlete and need assistance in that very thing, uh, Elisa tells us that the AOS and the AOC both have uh, significant transitioning programs, so do get in touch with them if you need that. On to the shootout uh, around the world in eight or so minutes. Look, we're just going to squeeze one in here. Uh, I fly into Sydney occasionally, and it always amazes me, given the supposed premium on land and housing in that city and the effect it has on uh, prices, how many golf courses there are. Yes, John, I will Woo-hoo. talk about golf. Uh, this has been building for seven years, right, the final conflict. Especially <laughs> so close to the damn city. Shouldn't there be a better use of the land? Apparently, a bit of digging around. Apparently, of the 81 golf courses in Sydney, 30 of them are partly or wholly situated on Crown land. And there's only 2 or 3% of the population play this silly game regularly. And what a wonderful use of Crown land that actually is. <laughs> actually, Roach, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned flying into Sydney because I, I fly into Sydney a lot and other major cities around the world a lot as well. Mm. And I think that is the thing that sets Sydney apart from any other major city uh. on the planet is the amount of greenery. So go golf. Yeah, it's greenery that only a small percentage of the population are even allowed access to. To, to take uh, your point somewhat seriously, though, Richie, if we can, there's no doubt do. participation rates are down. Um, there, I think there was a bit of a spike probably three or four years ago when you had Adam Scott and Jason Day mm. at the peak of their powers. They've um, waned a little bit in the past couple of years, but by all reports, uh, participation rates are down. But golf is looking at that. And so instead of oh, having good. instead of having the requirement that you have to play 18 holes in order to maintain a handicap and play in a competition, there's the short-form version. So a lot of clubs are actually now looking at nine-hole competitions. Oh, so you that's can a good idea. two hours or two and a half hours. Yep. So we can come into the 21st century. And we'll have you. units on the, other, on the other nine. That sounds fantastic. I thought you were going to reference Greg Norman, your, your hero, Jono. I'll do that later. He said that the future of golf is 12 holes. Because people are time poor, so I'm not. Okay. But I'm not sure that goes. I, far I enough. think this is the way it's going to go. It's inevitable. It's a bit like you know your chocolate manufacturer or your soft drink manufacturer charging you the same for a slightly smaller chocolate bar or yeah. a slightly smaller can. That's what's going to happen to golf. You got to drop from eighteen to twelve to nine. Um, I never thought I'd say that, but there it is. Motorsport's done its, and maybe to putt-putt, which we'll come to in just a (laughs) (laughs) tick. Look, let's go there right now. So uh, this putt-putt is going big time. Um, uh, Steph Curry, the NBA player, and this tells you everything you need to know about golf. The basketball is running this thing. Uh, He's putting together a series, a 10-episode mini golf competition, showcasing self-proclaimed mini golf lovers uh, and competing head-to-head through a you know mini golf obstacle course, and um, they're going to have sideline reporters. Curry will be there as a resident golf pro. It's going to be fantastic. This is the future of golf, John. <laughs> I, I think it sounds great. And by the way, actually. Reggie, Steph Curry is a scratch golfer He's a who has played oh, okay. in PGA tournaments and not disgraced himself. So I think you need to take that back. Take what back? Your disparaging comments about a basketball player being involved in this. I've got another Even disparaging Steph Curry comment. Thinks in red card, it's going yellow card. This way. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and look, uh, we've got to mention Tiger, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, highest civilian honour there in the US. Greatest comeback ever, Masters win, so good. Good greatest. to see Trump taking uh, advantage of the situation um, to, to look like a great president. Mm. Well, it's finally a policy area he knows something about. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's off scratch too, isn't he? Supposedly. Supposedly. Yeah. Supposedly. <laughs> so he says. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. All right, it's good to get it. And, Jono, you'll be pleased to know I will be bringing up golf again in Red Card, Yellow Card. Red Card, Yellow Card.
Yeah, so I'll keep my powder dry on that one. Let's start with you, Steve. The last time, give us a red card, yellow card. All right, I'm nominating Latrell Mitchell, rugby league player mm. who is on his way to greatness. Very young man with a big sidestep, a big fend. He's a big moment game breaker. And now that he's had a brush with the law and been fined for an altercation in a pub in Taree, he has well and truly marked his name on the way to greatness. And so that's a yellow, yellow yeah, card. Yeah, it's a yellow. Yeah. It's a real shame that you know someone so good still has to tick that box when they're uh, working their way through the rugby league system. All right, Jono, oh, well. fire up. Yeah, rugby league for me as well, Rochi. Mm. So remember Mark Riddell, Piggy Riddell, uh, yes. uh, former Saints and Parramatta League player. He actually recently uh, admitted to having lied about his age during his <laughs> career. The reason being <laughs> he pretended he was a couple of years younger so as to give him the best chance of getting an extra contract for a couple of years. He actually said it's a fairly common practice amongst rugby really? Players. Um, I mean, I wonder if this means that Cameron Smith is actually 41. <laughs> could well be. Didn't one of the Pakistani cricketers... Shoah Bakhtar, I right, think, might okay. have done the same thing, Indeed. allegedly. Yes, great stuff. Well, that's that's almost a, that's a sort of a green card. That's, you know, He's done gold well. Good work for you gold gotta, star. That's you got to respect that. Yeah, nice one. Gilly, what about yourself? Well, last month I had the new Spores Soccer Stadium. I'm going to keep with the stadium uh, theme and nominate the Darwin, the new Darwin International Tennis Centre. The, the Spores Soccer Team, you say? Spurs. Oh, Spurs. Spurs Soccer And what team. city are you talking about now? Darwin? Darwin. Darwin. The South African has never quite left you on that word. One last it? time. <laughs> one last time. Dar- now, when, it's Darwin, folks, just for those when, playing at home. When you're building a tennis court, there's one, one fundamental thing you have to get right. Mm. And the lines that's are straight. That, no, the court needs to be flat and yeah. not just about flat, not nearly <laughs> flat. It needs to be 180 degrees flat. <laughs> so this court, it's not only not flat, but it has a 49.5 centimetre slope on it. Gradient. Mm. Wow. Mm. Playing downhill. It's like Lords. It's the Lords exactly. of tennis courts. So I, I'm not sure about you guys, but I'm inclined to go with a red card on and this occasion. Was this, this has been used for wheelchair tennis. It Is was. Right? Yes, it was going to be used <laughs> for an officially uh, a, a wheelchair tournament sanctioned by the International Tennis Federation. They've now had to move that to an outer court. It's going to be a red which card. Presumably is flat. Red card. Very briefly, bringing up golf, Johnson, but mixing it with Aussie Rules. Uh, former Aussie Rules star and all round bad boy Jason Ackermanis. Acker to his friends. Surprised he hasn't turned up here more recently, actually. Recently been banned from his third golf club. <laughs> How good's golf, John? I'm really starting to warm up yeah, into. Yeah. What did he do this time? Uh, look, um, bits, and, bits and pieces. So um, it's around the Albury region, it seems, uh, for a fire exchange with a fellow member after his cart was moved. Uh, and I think he sort of lashed out at, at another another member and inc- oh, an incorrect signing of a scorecard, Ooh, which is cheating. That's, that's okay. pretty bad. It's a bit more it? serious. Yeah, yeah. Naturally, he's got an excuse for most of them, but uh, but he also uh, had his handicap down to point five. Now blown out to about five. So there's another professional sports player in another area who's done very well at golf. So I'm giving Acker a yellow card. Yellow card. He'll, for sure. he'll build up to his own red a little later on. Alrighty, well that wraps up red card, yellow card, and that pretty much wraps it up for us here at More Than Just a Game. Gents, very, very quickly, just a couple of minutes left, a highlight from the previous seven years of More Than Just a Game. Riles, got one? This one. Uh, you know, I think it's a fabulous uh, um, journey for seven years, and I think we just, every show has been better than the one before. So this one. Mm, well said. Jono, you can see you champion at the bit there. Oh, look, not a single moment, Rochi, but it's probably just a topic that oh. we've covered a few times, which <gasps> You're is... You're going to pinch mine. Yeah, yeah, it's Greg Norman oh, okay. and his 
and the shark and his Instagram page. I think I think it started with, you know, those photos of him semi-naked next to a stream and it's just followed. It's become a bit of an obsession and I just feel grateful that I've been able Gee, to keep right, our geez. listeners. It's, Gilly, it's it. ended with photos of him semi-naked in front of Get us out of this one, Gilly. Order. Give us a highlight, not a low uh, light, please. For me was interviewing the late, great Les Murray. A uh, great oh, moment yeah. in my life. Yes. Um, I was so nervous and overexcited that I actually couldn't talk and I think you mm. had to ask the first question in the end, Rochi, <laughs> but that was uh, a moment I'll never forget. Mine is the Bombers Asada saga, the story that kept on giving. That sustained this show for months, if not years. It did. There was so much in that, and it was an interesting story in its own right, but uh, there was so many more more angles than a dodecahedron or whatever it was. Uh, now, before we go, a quick thanks to a handful of people that either contributed to the show existing in the first place or who continue to support it. In approximate chronological order, I just want to say thanks to Andrew McGarry, Nance Haxton, Michael Mason, Susan Atkinson, Rory McDonald, Patrick Folks, Brittany Carter and Tim Verrill. Thank you to you all from all of us. And indeed, thanks to you for listening. It's given us a lot of pleasure putting the show together each month. Hope you've enjoyed it half as much as we have. So it leaves me to a simple task to say, fare thee well, Stephen Riley. See you all. To Simon Johnson. Till goodbye we, to you. Till the next chapter, Richie. Indeed. And David Gill, thanks for your company. Till we next meet. And it's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. We're off to do a victory lap now. Thanks for listening to more than just a game on Grandstand Digital. We'll continue to share and comment on issues and sport off the field of play on Twitter at MTJAG Grandstand. But until next time, wherever and whenever that may be, it's bye for now.